Texas State University's Communication Design Program is excited to announce the State of Black Design Conference, a three-day virtual event March 4th, 5th, and 6th. This year's theme is Family Reunion, and there'll be over 50 amazing speakers, including author and educator Jelani Cobb and world-renowned poet, activist, and educator Nikki Giovanni. This year debuts the State of Black Design's Resume Book Initiative, So if you're a black design student or you're a black designer looking for your next role, then listen up. You'll be able to submit your resume and your portfolio to the resume book, along with your institution of study and major if you're a student, and recruiters and employers will have access to it before the event. If you're interested and you want to be included in the resume book, send your info to blackdesign at txstate.edu with the subject line resume book. You have until March 3rd to submit. The State of Black Design Conference is brought to you with the support of the University of Texas at Austin, Universal Pictures Home Entertainment, Microsoft, General Motors, Design for America, Sevilla, IDSA, AIGA, and Revision Path. Tickets are available at txstate.edu forward slash black design. Just click the register now button. There'll also be a link in the show notes as well. Hope to see you there. Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Pollen Midwest is looking for an art director. Pollen is based in Minneapolis, but this is a remote position. Work & Co. is looking for a senior product manager and a product management lead. These positions are for Work & Co.'s office in Brooklyn, New York. Civic Actions is looking for a product designer. This is a remote position. The Predictive Index is looking for a senior UX researcher. This is a remote position. And Constructive is looking for a senior interactive designer. This is a remote position. For just $99, we will feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and help spread the word about it to our audience of listeners. We also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I got to tell you, today is a very special day. It is Revision Path's ninth anniversary. Nine years. Listen, thank you all so, so much for listening to the podcast, for sharing the podcast, and really for being here for this whole entire journey. Also, today is the last day of 28 Days of the Web. Uh, 28 Days of the Web, as you know, that's where we showcase a different black designer or developer for each day during this month in celebration of Black History Month. 
So you can go and check out this year's honorees, the full set, and look at previous years of honorees over at 28daysoftheweb.com. Also, it's the last day to pick up any 28 Days of the Web merch as well. It's a really great way to support the podcast. 100% of sales go right back into producing this show every single week. Now let's take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Joe Blau. Now, if you're a longtime listener of the show, you may remember when we had him back in 2015 when he worked as a software engineer. Now he's an angel investor and the founder and CEO of Atomize in San Francisco, California. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, everybody. Also, thank you for having me back on, Maurice. My name is Joe Blau, and I am the founder of a no-code smart contract platform called Atomize, and I'm also an angel investor based in San Francisco, California. Nice. How has uh, this year been going for you so far? This year has actually been pretty amazing for us. I know last time we spoke, I was mentioning that I would go to Amazon and back and chat with my girlfriend. She's now my wife. We have two young boys. And I would say that this year is probably shaping up to be one of the most amazingly in a good way years of my career. And so I'm super excited about what's been going on and what's been kind of opened up in terms of opportunity for myself and then also for a couple of friends and the company that we're founding and we're building. How has it been just kind of working over these past few years, like with the pandemic and everything? I would say that, you know, the pandemic has really introduced a lot of new dynamics into the workplace. I have a lot of friends that have gone from, you know, remote work to back in the office and back and forth. And there are lots of conversations about what's the right way? What's the wrong way? Can we even go back in? Do we need to go back in? And I've noticed that a lot of my friends are really unhappy with kind of like this disconnect between being out of the office and still trying to have this tight-knit relationship with your colleagues. And it's been interesting to see that transpire in certain companies and then other spaces. I've seen actually increased productivity where the teams already have this bond. They kind of already know what they're doing, and it makes it so that people can really live their lives and have more of a work-life balance. And for me personally, I've been trying to figure out a way to live in this new world where I can actually have that balance. You know, I can work from my desk in my house, have this balance of being able to be creative and be productive and not have to go into an office. And so I've actually been trying to take advantage of it. And my co-founder and I were trying to become more proponents of that lifestyle. But it has been tough because you do have people that really thrive and live off of this in-person engagement. I would say I'm one of those two. I love meeting people in person. I love going to events. I love going to parties. I love meeting people. But I think that there's this really interesting push and pull in the the community right now 
in, in all office spaces between should we be in the office or should we not be in the office? And then the trade-offs of doing that hybrid. Yeah. Balance, I think, is something that so many folks now, especially so many working folks, are really trying to to figure out. Companies are trying to figure it out because they've sunk hundreds of thousands of dollars into real estate that is largely sitting empty because people are working from home. And so some companies are like, well, maybe we'll do hybrid. Maybe we'll try to figure out some way to still sort of keep our brick and mortar location, but then also be able to work remotely. I know, you know, just for the show, we have folks that are in the advertising industry. I found it's been really rough for them because they're really used to that, like in office collaboration that you kind of just really can't can't replicate over Zoom. You can try. And I think, you know, we're starting to get better at it and such, but it's still something we're all trying to balance. Yeah. You know, I'm a big fan of Star Trek. So I liken this to, you know, the whole world was basically traveling at warp speed Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden the pandemic hit and just dropped us out of warp. And now we're all looking around saying like, what are we doing was what we were doing before actually productive or is it counterproductive? And we're asking a lot of questions that we just were never asking before because we were all just going with the flow because everybody else was doing it. Mm-hmm. And so I think these questions that are coming up are really important questions to ask about the future of work. And every company has their own take on how they're trying to address it. Yeah. And I think also with this you know, kind of balance of trying to figure it out, I feel like that's where a lot of these talks about the metaverse and work metaverse spaces have started to come up and we'll, we'll get into metaverse stuff later. But I think one thing is how technology has sort of risen to fill the gaps in some way. I mean, zoom had always been around, but it really like blew up in 2020 because of all of this. And then you've got other platforms that have just sort of started to come up because of that, because now more people are video conferencing. So there's like browser based kind of video conferencing solutions and, there's ways that people are trying to still replicate that experience. So technology, interestingly, has started to fill the void, but it's still a process. Yeah, I would say, you know, right when the pandemic started, I did I attended a lot of Zoom weddings. I attended a lot of Zoom everything. Yeah. And, you know, nothing really up until this point has really been a substitute for just physically being there with people in meat space, you know, in Adam space. So Zoom does kind of fill that gap and it definitely makes it a lot easier. You know, if you're fundraising and you don't have to go walk downtown and go to a bunch of different coffee shops, if you can just have four meetings in a row on Zoom in two hours, that's a lot easier than having to go spend half of your day walking around talking to investors. But, Hmm. you know, there's trade-offs to that as well. So. I mean, I can tell the story now because I don't work there anymore. But one of the companies I used to work for, they were trying to raise funds like right during like the start of the pandemic, like March, April, May. And Mm -hmm. it was just impossible. They would try to have these Zoom meetings and people were either Zoomed out already, like they just didn't want to do any more meetings or they found it difficult to replicate that same kind of in-person shaking hands, talking over drinks kind of thing. Like you just, Mm -hmm. it's just not the same over Zoom, especially when we were really trying to get a hold on what all of this was and how we were going to possibly come out of it. I mean, the company is still around. It's a shell of its former self, but it has impacted business in a big way. One of the things that we're trying to do as my co-founder and I, we've been thinking about this is we really want to see if there's a way that we can embrace this new lifestyle because there are clearly people that really believe 
I should be able to work remote. I should be able to work anywhere. I want to be able to have a flexible lifestyle. And so I'm looking at it more from the perspective of how do we embrace this and what are the tools that are available for us to really take advantage of this new lifestyle and see if we can actually push this forward. Because, you know, while there are trade-offs, you know, I do love, I love going into the office. After I left Amazon, I pivoted to uh, working at Uber. It was an in-office relationship and I loved the time that I spent there. It was probably one of the best experiences in my career. But right now I feel like I'm at a point where I can step away and look back and healthily say, I would rather be in a position where I can have a little bit more flexibility and have a little bit more of that balance and have a little bit more control over my time. Mm. Actually, let's dive into that a bit. You know, when you first came on the show, which was back in 2015, you were working at Amazon as a software engineer and you had a startup that you had created called Canopsis that was working in the Internet of Things space. Now, I know you're not at Amazon anymore. Of course, you just mentioned you're CEO of your own company now. Are you still building Canopsis? Is it still kind of in the wings? We're working on that for a little while, but I actually ended up sunsetting the company when I moved out working um, Pittsburgh at Uber. Oh, so okay. I'll go through and I'll kind of do a little bit of a, a historical what happened between our last interview and now kind of <laughs> catching you up to speed since the last episode. I was at Amazon for a, a little bit over a year and a half. I'm working on the mobile point of sale application. I had a blast doing it, met a a bunch of amazing colleagues and a bunch of amazing friends. I ended up being tapped by a product manager at Uber, who was actually the one that led uh, scouting for the Uber ATG team, which is the self-driving car team at Uber. And he reached out to me in mid-2015, said, hey, we're building up a new iOS team out here. We need somebody to help us build the user interface for the self-driving cars. You're going to be the second person on the team and you're going to help scale this team up. So I ended up saying, you know, why would I pass this opportunity up? You know, I'm very big into sensors. I'm very big into sensor fusion. And the self-driving car to me is the culmination of almost every sensor, you know, you can put into something. Mm -hmm. So in January of 2016, I ended up moving out to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, And I lived there for about three and a half years, and I was working on Uber's self-driving car. So we were able to launch V1 of the self-driving car and then V2 of the self-driving car. The software that I built and helped contribute to was able to, we were able to conduct about 50,000 trips with actual passengers in our car in Pittsburgh, also down in Arizona and a few trips in San Francisco. And so it was a really great experience because I got a chance to work with some of the brightest minds in the software industry and in the automotive industry. Uh, Amazing industrial designers, amazing software engineers, amazing infrastructure engineers, amazing LiDAR designers. The people that invented Google Maps were working there. I mean, we had the best of the best talent on the team. Mm. And so I really enjoyed my time and my stint there. And then about three and a half years in, I started to want to work on a few other projects. You know, I started to see kind of like the light at the end of the tunnel. I had a feeling that Uber was eventually going to sell the self-driving car division due to the change in leadership. And so I moved back to San Francisco, joined Uber AI, where I worked on a bunch of also really cool stuff. The team was amazing. Another group of extremely bright individuals. And then right after the pandemic started, actually, we were fortunate enough to be able to capture some equity from being employees of Uber. 
And we were fortunate enough to be able to invest that into some cryptocurrencies. And that basically gave us enough runway to kind of set ourselves free. And so I was able to leave Uber in mid or early 2020, soon after the pandemic started, and took a year to kind of explore what I wanted to do. And then eventually linked up with one of my friends that I actually met at Uber ATG, who was an industrial designer, and we were able to start building our company. Wow, that is quite a story. (laughs) There's a lot of points in there I want to touch on. I want to go back just kind of briefly to Uber. I mean, during that time that you were there with the whole self-driving car thing, there was a lot of stuff that went down just with the company in general. You know, just like a few of the things were around Travis Kalanick stepping down as CEO. There was like a huge data breach. There was Mm -hmm. talk about like employees tracking customers with this Mm -hmm. God mode. Like, did you ever feel any of like the fallout from those events just working there? Like, was it, was it like a palpable thing that you were working for a company where this sort of stuff was going on? Yeah. I mean, you know, I still have friends and I still have family members that are in the real world and they're watching the news and they see all of the stuff that's happening. And there are definitely lots of questions that I got about it. I had lots of friends that, you know, when I would go visit them, they would say, oh, we're going to take a lift. We're not taking Uber, even though I worked <laughs> at Uber. Yeah. And as an Uber employee, you get free credits to ride in the cars. So oh. for the most part, I never even paid for Ubers while I was there because you get $400 of free credits every month, or you used to. And so, mm. you know, it was really tough from that perspective. I think that whole season, I remember when that first started, it was in January of 2017. It was like the Susan Fowler incident. Then there was the gray ball thing that you were talking about, where they were tracking people, reporters. There was Travis Kalanick yelling at that the Uber driver. Then there was the Oh, guy I forgot in about that. Yeah. Yeah. Then there was the guy in India who was like doing something nefarious over there. Then there was like all of these. Then there was the Anthony Lewandowski taking data from Google. Mm-hmm. Then there was Travis Kalanick's parents, you know, her, his mom died in the boating accident. And so there was this really compact six-month window where it was just drama every single month. We had a lot of colleagues leave. You know, a lot of people left. There's a pretty fluid transfer of engineering between a lot of the Silicon Valley companies. And so a lot of people that I knew that I was friends with all left and went to Facebook or, you know, Twitter or Amazon or whatever. And so it was pretty tough. There was one saving grace for us, which is that because ATG was a bit insulated from the rest of the company, we were effectively our own company. We were our own separate LLC. And because we were insulated from the rest of the company, we didn't really feel a lot of those effects, I would say, as strongly as people that were in the rest of the world, the rest of the offices did. But it definitely had a negative impact on sentiment at the company and sentiment as a team. Because, you know, in our mind, we're building this service that's supposed to basically make it so that you can always get a ride, right? The original saying with Uber was push a button, get a ride. And when you looked at the thing that drew me to Uber was actually a bunch of negative experiences that I had with taxis in a bunch of different cities, right? Where yeah. you know I would try to flag a taxi and the taxi would drive by. Um, I remember being in LA and one of my, and actually my co-founder at, at Canopsis, we were in LA and he'd lived in LA and there were a bunch of taxis on Hollywood Boulevard. We had just come out of a club and we went to go flag a taxi and they were like, no, no, no. And then, you know, this other Caucasian couple comes up and they get right in and they go. 
and I've had a bunch of experiences like that in the United States. And so for me, when I flag, when I pick an Uber, the Uber always shows up. And so for me, I wasn't just like, oh, I like Uber because, you know, for whatever reason, because it's cheaper or whatever. I like Uber because it actually allows me to get a cab and get from point A to point B, mm-hmm. right? And not need a car. I had a deeper a deeper rationale for why I would choose Uber over a cab. Now, Uber over Lyft, you know, that's that's a toss-up at that point. But yeah, it was really tough during those years to be an employee of the company because we lost a lot of talent. People were not looking to work at Uber. And, you know, we effectively had, our leader had kind of lost a lot of his power to be able to be actionable. And at that point, you know, he was replaced with Dara. Yeah, I remember those times, you know, when people were like really actively like boycotting Uber, like from the user side, because all these oh, yeah. things were happening, you know, and it's like, it's interesting because I don't know, do you think Uber's kind of turned their reputation around because of the pandemic? It's a tough company right now. I think the reason that their reputation has kind of turned around is just because a lot of the things that they were doing that were interesting and kind of counterculture have kind of just fallen by the wayside, right? They've sold off all of their assets that they've owned in other countries have been sold off, right? So Uber in Russia got sold to Yandex. Uber in China got sold to Didi. Uber in the Middle East got sold to Kareem. You know, they've really offloaded a lot. Oh, Uber in um, Southeast Asia got sold to Grab, right? So they've offloaded a lot of the risk of a lot of these controversial pieces that they were operating. Mm -hmm. And really, it's just become... Right now, Uber is effectively a food delivery service. You know, it's, it competes with DoorDash. <laughs> it does have ride sharing, but that's not a big part of the business right now because nobody's really traveling. So yeah. it's a tough business to be in. And then you're also, you're in an extreme regulatory environment. Either you're driving people around, which has a lot of regulation around it, or you're driving food around and food has a lot more regulation around it. Yep. So it's a very tough business to be in. And the margins are super low. They're razor thin. And it's just a lot of optimization. And when Uber was not really following the regulations, that was kind of what brought it to prominence. And now that Uber is just behaving, nobody really cares anymore. I was thinking about that as I was sort of researching for this interview. Like, I've been an Uber customer for over a decade. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing. Like, the thing that drew me to Uber was similar to what you were talking about with cabs. Like, I would like fly out places and then I couldn't even get a cab to come home when I came to the airport in Atlanta. Like the mm-hmm. cabs were like, no, I'm not going to that neighborhood. Like they'll mm-hmm. take me to downtown, which is past where I have to go. And yeah, I could hop on the train. And most of the time I would do that. But it's like sometimes you're just tired and you're like, I just want to go home. And mm-hmm. Uber would could actually take me to my apartment where a cab wouldn't do that. And so I think it was that sort of initial convenience, like you mentioned, that really brought people in. But yeah, now I, I was wondering that just because of the pandemic. I mean, yeah, Uber delivers food which their competitors really don't do, at least in the ride share space. Like Lyft hasn't went out and, and done that yet. But no, I, I was wondering if it sort of turned things around because now so many people are kind of using it almost as a utility because of that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just kind of gotten to the point where, you know, you either taking an Uber or a cab, you know, what it also did was elevate the service of cabs, you know, so cabs have to be more nimble. They need an app. Mm-hmm. They need to basically increase their service. So that increased competition helped make cabs a little bit better. But, you know, for me, I think I'm still in the same boat where it's just like, it's easier for me to just call an Uber or call a Lyft. Like right now I don't work there. So I just right. basically do what everybody else does. I open the app, figure out which one is cheapest. And then I just pick that one. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's kind of like where I am right now, but 
they're in a position where they are trying to do a lot of partnerships and work with a lot of teams. And that's kind of the, the new direction is instead of trying to just dominate the whole scene, you know, they just want to partner and work with other people. And that's, and that's a great position to be in because you, you make a lot of friends that way. So yeah, it's a good strategy. So let's talk about your current venture, Atomize. I'm looking at the Atomize website right now, and it says, Atomize lets you deploy and interact with crypto smart contracts on chain without having to write code. Now, mm, before a it's a mouthful. <laughs> before we get into more about Atomize, tell me how you got into crypto. I mean, I think you kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier with uh, mm. flipping that equity from Uber. Yeah. So the journey actually started with me back in 2013. So at the time, I was doing a bunch of contract work, and there was a TechCrunch reporter named John Biggs, and he wrote this article. It's actually from April 8th, 2013, and it's called How to Mine Bitcoins. So I read the article. I followed all the instructions. I installed this miner basically on my computer, and I let it run all night. My fan went crazy. And I ended up mining, you know, like half of a Bitcoin or something in this mining pool called Slush Pool, which is actually still around today. And then after that, you know, I kind of just didn't think about it because electricity in San Francisco is super expensive. And I was just like, I'm not going to waste my money on this thing that I think at the time it was maybe like $20 or $18. I'm like, I'm not mining this thing. and I'm paying $40, $50 in electricity to get $20 of coin, right? Mm-hmm. So I just left it alone. And then fast forward in 2014, I met this individual in my building and he was super excited about crypto. He's like, oh, you got to check out this new thing. It's called Ethereum. You got to check this out. It's Ethereum. You're going to love this thing. It's a, it's like Bitcoin, but it's a decentralized computer. You can run anything on it. You can run any type of program you want. And it's like Bitcoin, but with programming on top. And I remember telling him, I was like, I'm not interested in that. All I'm focused on right now is mobile application development and sensors. So this is probably maybe six months before we first spoke. So this guy told me about Ethereum. <laughs> I just totally, I just totally blew him off. I was like, I'm not interested in that. I'm only interested in mobile sensors and machine learning and stuff like that. And he was like, all right, fine. And I nicknamed this guy Oracle Zero now, but he introduced me to <laughs> Ethereum and I just totally passed it over. And then in 2016, mid 2016, I started hearing a little bit of rumblings and I went and created a Coinbase account and I was like, let me go see what this Ethereum thing is doing. And it had gone from, you know, the 50 cents that he had invested in at the ICO or the 25 cents that he had invested in at the ICO per Ethereum to $12 or something. Mm. And I was like, man, that seems like a pretty good investment. You know, you're, you know, like 40, 50, like 50 extra money, something like that. And so I was like, okay maybe a little bit higher, like 60, 70 extra money. So I was like, okay, this seems like a pretty interesting concept. So I ended up borrowing money from two of my really good friends and then taking some of my money and buying a whole tranche of Ethereum in mid-2016. And And I basically gave them this like crazy term sheet. I was like, I will pay you back 150% of your money in 2017 with this investment. And I told him, I was like, where else are you going to get a guaranteed investment of 50% return on investment in six months? Nobody's going to give you that. Yeah. You know, you go to like Ally Bank and they're giving you 0.5% interest on your money. 
And so I basically offered them this like crazy deal. And they gave me money. They both wrote me checks. I deposited the money. I put it into Coinbase. I bought crypto with it. And then I ended up paying them back in early 2017, which was actually looking back, probably a bit of a financial mistake, but it did help introduce them to crypto because they saw the gains happen as I saw the gains happen. Mm-hmm. And then 2017 was just that whirlwind. Ethereum went from $12 a coin to $1,500 a coin you know, by the next year. So you have this thousands of percent run up of this token. That was my first kind of taste of like, oh, wow, this crypto investment thing is actually pretty interesting. I was trading that whole time, but it wasn't really fruitful because if you were trading in crypto and it was going up, everybody was making money. So everybody looked like a genius. And then, you know, in December of 2017, that was when Bitcoin hit its top, you know, 28 days later, Ethereum hit its top and then everything kind of came crashing down. And I don't know if this is just something innate in me, but I was already scared. And so I had actually sold everything in near January of 2018. So I was like fully out. I had Mm -hmm. no more crypto. But what I was doing was I started paying attention to a lot of the technology that was being built. I was like, oh, what's going on with these smart contracts? I actually wrote one of my first decentralized applications, or it's called a DAP, which was kind of like a it was like a dog renting website where you would go in and you could like rent a dog and then put it back and stuff like that. And it would all happen on the blockchain. And so I built one of those and I started playing around with it, started listening to a lot of other podcasts that are in the crypto ecosystem. And really just started to pay attention to it casually, because really, to me, all I saw was people are making these coins, these coins are going up in value, but they don't really have any intrinsic utility outside of kind of the original utility of Bitcoin, which Mm -hmm. is a way to send something from one person to another without counterparty risk and without being censored. So I uh, kept playing around. Obviously, I was at, we're talking 2018. I'm still working at Uber. I'm still working on self-driving cars. We're shipping. I'm going to Arizona. I'm going to San Francisco. We're deploying our cars in production. So I didn't really have a lot of time to really actively manage it. So what I would do is I would just take part of my paycheck and just start to buy slowly back in. After the price came way down, I was like, well, I don't think this is going away. So I started to slowly buy back in. And then in 2019, Uber had its IPO. And so the deal that I had received from joining Uber was pretty lucrative. You know, it was a good six-figure, actually it was a seven-figure return from the IPO, but after taxes, you know, you pay 50% in taxes. So it ended up being a six-figure return, which was still very good. And, you know, we decided to take that and invest it into crypto. And so we kind of just, you know, YOLO'd all in, I would say. And that ended up working out very well in terms of timing, just because this last bull run kind of exceeded the intensity of the original bull run if you were looking at the right types of products. And so because I've been paying attention, I've been in the community, I've been watching and listening to a lot of creators and influencers, people that are developers, people that are that are commentators, podcasters, I kind of knew where to look for this next bull run. And so I was able to just kind of get lucky and then also kind of paying attention, get into this crypto wave. And then what ended up happening is what I realized is that myself and a lot of my friends from this original wave all got to a certain level of wealth where we started to realize, you know, we've got a lot of time on our hands. And that kind of led us to start to think really more about life and about life decisions. And I think it really kind of broke my brain uh, in a good way to have me open up my thought process and think about 
what do I really want to accomplish? What are some big goals? Kind of like Elon Musk level, like he wants to basically have a colony on Mars that can be fully self-sustaining without Earth. That's probably not going to happen in his lifetime, but that's one of those big long-term goals. And so I started to think about that a lot. But that's where my crypto journey kind of came from, you know, back in 2013. Mm-hmm. And then it led me to where I am today. And then what ended up happening is my co-founder I actually met him at Uber. So he was an industrial designer on the same team that I was a software engineer on. And so we decided to pair up. We've always been friends. We used to hang out in Pittsburgh and grab drinks together, or go to each other's homes. And so him and I got together. We kind of floated a bunch of ideas back and forth. We tinkered around with a bunch of stuff. And then we decided that, you know, since we're both doing financially well and we're in crypto and we're both excited about this field, we want to make it very accessible for somebody who doesn't know anything about crypto, somebody who doesn't know anything about smart contracts, to be able to build one of these things and put it on the blockchain and retain ownership. That's kind of what we're focused on right now. I mean, it sounds like you really learned about this in a really smart way, which is you had been in the game really kind of learning and studying for a long time, like since 2013. You didn't just kind of jump right into it, you know, after, I don't know, buying stocks after Reddit recommendations or something. But you've been in it for a while and was able to kind of see the ebb and flow and see how things go and then find the right time to really get in. And Mm -hmm. with that, you started, you know, this business to help other folks get in. Yeah, I think for us, what we're really focused on is, I think there's a key thing about crypto, which a lot of people, it's a lot of things to a lot of people, right? There's like NFTs, there's tokens, there's metaverse, there's DAOs, there's all these words that get floated around. But I think fundamentally, what crypto provides is a contrast to the existing system that we've kind of been grown up and raised in if you've been around the internet from basically after the 2000.com crash until now, which is there'll be a website fill in the name of bigwebsite.com, and they will create a database and they will entice you to get on that database somehow, some way. And what happens is you have these network effects, which the more people that are on that website in their database, the more people want to go to that website and get in their database. So you know, you've got Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, Google, Apple, they all have the same kind of network effects. And so what happens is the sites or these services get to a certain level of scale where you start to realize that if you're a consumer, the one individual consumer doesn't really matter as much because you don't own the data. And I actually saw this in 2011. The first company that I worked for when I went to Silicon Valley, we we were a startup and we used to collect Twitter data as well as other social media network data. And then we would filter the data and then we would sell insights to companies that were our partners. So we had like Bentley was one of our partners and a bunch of high level, you know, Apple was one of our partners. So we would sell them information about what's happening on Twitter. Well, once Twitter realizes, hey, there's a business here, Twitter wants to roll that into their business. So they just cut off the pipeline. They had Twitter had this service called a fire hose. They just stopped the fire hose and then they just run the fire hose internally. They build this business internally. They sell ads internally and then they use that as a revenue generator internally. And so there's this kind of like push and pull between this open source ecosystem of people that are developers and that are creative and that are actually contributing to the platform and the internal team that is trying to make money any way, shape or form to return the fund for the investors. And 
you started to see this more and more often on the developer side from like 2010 until it's still actually going on now where, you know, with Facebook, there was the whole app.net controversy where somebody wanted to build a, an app store for Facebook using Facebook's API and Facebook said, no, we're building that ourselves and that violates our terms of service. And so they had to make something else. They made a different social network. And there are tons of examples of this where somebody builds a platform, they build these APIs to allow you to integrate but as soon as they find that somebody else is building something that has value, they cut that integration off and then they just build it internally. And the reason they're allowed to do that is because of the network effects. They own all the data. And the contrast to what crypto does is crypto tries to take that same database, but instead of the database being inside Facebook or Google or Twitter or Amazon, the database is on everybody's computer. So everybody has access to the data. And then it becomes a game of, or not a game, it becomes a challenge of how do you build the experience that solves the person's problem, right? It's kind of the Y Combinator slogan of make something people want. How do you make the thing that people want? You know, if you make this product or service that performs the job better than the competitor's product or service, where you both have access to the same data, that makes it a more equitable playing field. And so the thing that I like about crypto and this is just all in theory, right? This could all be invalidated <laughs> tomorrow for all I know. But right now, there's an equal playing field where everybody has access to the same view into the data. And really, you as a, as a creator or you as an engineer or you as a developer, you are just kind of like a DJ, right? Where you get to curate the songs. You're like, today, we're playing house music. Or today, our site plays house music or our site plays hip hop or our site plays jazz or our site plays classical. And you get to curate that data and make build your community around that curated experience. And so we want to help people build products that can be put online. And then we think that as we start helping people get their things online, their software, their products, their smart contracts, it will allow them to then have other services that other people build that we don't control, make their experience even more customized and even better just for their community or whatever they want to build. Now, where does the smart contract come into play? Like, why is it important to have that? If we go back to, you know, the beginning of Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is a way for you and me for me to send you some value, basically like a token, the Bitcoin, for a way for me to send it from myself to you without having somebody else be able to stop the transaction. The challenge is it's just a value, right? So we're just sending like, think of it like a dollar. I'm just sending you a dollar or sending a dollar back. What people learned early on is that a lot of times value is attached to some sort of condition. I want you to have this money after you, you know, rake my yard, or I want to give you this money after the stock price goes to like $50, or I want to release this money after these six things are accomplished at this speed or whatever. So the smart contract piece is just adding logic to the value transfer. So this is what's created this crazy ecosystem in crypto because people are trying to add all types of crazy logic to value. Economics is kind of like the study of value of how like goods and services are transported and how they generate value. And when you look at crypto, crypto kind of gives you a, like a playground to actually test out these theories. So I could write something that says, okay, Maurice, I'm going to give you 100 Joe tokens today. And then tomorrow I'm going to give you another hundred. And then the day after that, I'm going to give you another hundred. And then the day after that, I'm going to give you another hundred. And I'm just going to keep doing that forever. 
as long as you have access to your wallet, my program will keep giving you 100 Joe tokens. And you can deploy that onto a blockchain and see what happens. Will that eventually reach some value? Would you eventually say like, oh, I have you know a billion of these. Let me give these to somebody else. And now two people have these tokens, but you're still the only one getting paid those tokens. Does that eventually form a market or a marketplace? Do people eventually start to say like, oh, there's actually value. I can actually use these things as a way to barter back and forth for some other asset or for some other thing that's in the real world. And so you basically end up with the social consensus, which looks a lot like money, but it's written in a way that the rules are written in code and they effectively can't be changed. And like you said, it's all on the blockchain, so it's decentralized, but it's a way where, well, I don't know. I guess I'm still trying to wrap my <laughs> my head around like smart contracts and NFTs and, and everything like that. Like I want to get more people on the show this year that can really like yeah. explain it because I, I see it now, all of this being really sort of the next like generation of where the web is going to go. I'm saying last month because we're recording in January, but back in December, I attended a conference about the metaverse in the metaverse. And, you know, they had people talking about all the sort of different considerations like Mm -hmm. interoperability and scalability and commerce. And, and like there were so many considerations and things to think about with this sort of upcoming metaverse, which I think had already started to be a part of people's minds once Facebook connect happened back in like, I think it was October of last year, 2021, when they said, we're changing our name to Meta, we're investing in the metaverse. And then all of a sudden, everyone was like, what is the metaverse? And I think anybody that probably watched anime in the 90s had probably already heard of metaverse. Like, I don't know, I think it was probably on VR Troopers or Sailor Moon or something, probably. But (laughs) like, they've heard of that concept, but not necessarily what it meant in the real world. And so Mm -hmm. it was something that I think was part of people's general sort of mindset saying, well, I don't want to be part of the metaverse. But after I attended that conference, what stuck out to me was that this is like the next step. Like I could see this being potentially the next digital divide because people are putting a ton of money and resources and time into really building whatever this next sort of massive infrastructure is. And there are so many people that are just like, I don't want any part of it. But Mm -hmm. it feels like the velocity at which we are approaching this is rapidly increasing. So I want to try to learn more about it to try to see where I can fit in with all this stuff. Yeah, I guess for me, I kind of separate metaverse and crypto into kind of like two separate buckets. Okay. Um, You know, for me, the metaverse is the next evolution of like AR VR. AR VR is a technology that was invented in, I think like the late eighties. And they've kind of slowly been incrementally trying to push it and make it a reality. And this is very similar to like self-driving. One of the reasons why I worked at Uber and I went to Pittsburgh is because Carnegie Mellon, you know, they had a self-driving car in 1989 called Alvin that was able to kind of do some basic navigation. And they were one of the pioneers of helping make self-driving a reality. So I got to learn from some of the best of the best that invented a lot of the processes for self-driving. And so you've got this technology vertical, self-driving cars. We don't have the human level self-driving car yet, but we're on our way towards that progress. And that's something that started in the 80s. VR, AR is the same thing. Started in the 80s. We're trying to get to that point where we have compute and screens and comfort and battery power that can make this experience good. 
or good enough that you will feel comfortable in this immersed in this environment, right? So mm-hmm. that your neck doesn't hurt, so that you don't get dizzy, so that you know it feels as realistic as possible. And that's another vertical that's kind of being developed in what I would say is the newest incarnation, which is the metaverse. And then you've got crypto, and crypto is really about censorship resistance and reducing counterparty risk. And so, you know, earlier you were asking about what is a smart contract. If you just think about a regular contract in real life, right? If you go, you know, you go rent a car at Avis and they give you a piece of paper and you sign your name on it. And when you sign your name on it, you're agreeing to all of the words that are in that paper, Mm -hmm. right? If I crash it, I'm going to have my insurance pay for it or whatever. You know, it doesn't have any of these dents of these dings. That's what you're agreeing to. Now that contract is adjudicated by some legal entity, probably like a judge. So if you violate that contract, there's going to be somebody that's going to say, oh, Maurice, he borrowed this car. It didn't have any scratches. I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden there's a big scratch on the driver's side door. You have to pay whatever the contract stipulates in the contract. So if you just take that, all that logic that we just said, right? If car gets scratched, you have to pay X amount of dollars. If this thing doesn't do this, then you have to do this. You write that in code. Just like I would say, like, if this happens, then do this. You would write that in code, and then you can deploy that code into a database that everybody in the world has access to kind of read and see. That's pretty much what the smart contract is. So the NFT, or a non-fungible token, is a contract that specifies that there is effectively only one of these. Fungibility is this concept in economics that means that if I have something, the one thing that I have is no different than the one thing you have. So the best way to explain is like if I have like 10 $1 bills and you have 10 $1 bills and somebody picks up all of them and then they redistribute them and they give you 10 new ones and they give me new 10 new ones, you're not going to say like, oh, I want the one with serial number that ends in 05 because that was mine. Because dollars are fungible, which means I can exchange my dollar for your dollar, or your dollar for my dollar, and nothing, it doesn't matter. They're, right. they're exchangeable equally. Non-fungible means if I have a dollar, my dollar is special and your dollar is not. So that's when you get into things like trading cards or beanie babies or pet rocks, things that have a unique value. You know, if I have like a special anime card or a special Magic the Gathering card and you don't have that Magic the Gathering card, that's non-fungible. I can't just give you mine and you'll give me any other one back. So these non-fungible tokens are representations of unique items. And the way that they're defined is in what's called a smart contract. This item only exists and is only owned by this one person, for example. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. I get it. I understand it now. <laughs> okay. Thank yeah, you so much for that explanation. There's a lot of economic theory and there are a lot of disciplines that all merge in together to form crypto. And you really have to be multidisciplinary, which I was not before I started learning about all this stuff. You really have to learn a lot to try to fit your brain into what's actually going on in crypto. Now, where do you see, I guess, Web3 with all of this? I keep hearing Web3 being called the the technological evolution of the internet. Yeah, so Web3, you know, it's funny because as a software engineer, I'm always thinking like, okay, what is the most basic thing? Web3 is a library that was created that literally all it does is let you interact with this blockchain, right? So this database that is this ever-growing database that everybody has access to, Web3 is just a library that lets you read and write from that database. Now, what's happened is that term has been co-opted to be everything involving crypto, right? So 
Web3 means smart contracts. It means dApps. It means like Solana. It means Avalanche. It means everything, right? It means Bitcoin. Everything kind of falls into this Web3 umbrella. And the mantra behind Web3.0 is that we're going to create a new internet that is not owned by Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, but it's owned by the people. That is the charge. And the way that the people can own the internet is because of what I mentioned earlier. When you create the smart contract and you deploy the smart contract on the blockchain, you own the contract. There's nobody else that can go in and take custody of the contract. And that design is the genius invention that Bitcoin created, but it just created it for money, basically, for value. When you own your Bitcoin, nobody can just come take it from you. You have to basically give it to somebody else. There's no way for somebody to take your Bitcoin. You have to voluntarily give it to somebody. Now, a judge can say, hey, you violated this law and you owe us XYZ dollars in Bitcoins. And if you don't you know, pay this fine, then you know, you'll go to jail or whatever, and then you can hand it over. But there's no way that they can just go into your account and pull the Bitcoin out. You have to hand it over. This Web3 concept just takes that version of you have to give over your Bitcoin to you have to give over anything you create on the, in Web3. So, I mean, you can obviously get tricked out of it. There's a lot of people that are getting scammed and hacked because a lot of the tooling is not amazing. But effectively, you have to give something away. Nobody can take anything from you. And that's the whole concept behind this Web3 movement. We're building a version of the internet where Facebook doesn't get to block your account or Twitter doesn't get to revoke your developer access or YouTube doesn't get to take down your video because they thought that this looks very similar to another video, even though you did all the work and recreated and remastered and built everything yourself. Mm -hmm. We're building a version of the internet where you own your stuff. And then you have to go through the regular legal process, right? If in the real world, something happens that violates a law, there's a legal process that you go through. It's the same thing in crypto. Mt. Gox lost a bunch of people's money. They did a bunch of shady stuff. They went through a legal process. They got their Bitcoin confiscated, and they went through the regular process that anybody who did anything shady would, you know, would go through. So it kind of just slows down this process, this network effect process of aggregating data, aggregating user information, and then being able to use that to rent seek and kind of take over and start to like build this vertically integrated, you know, monopoly style business. Mm. So for people that are are listening to this now, and hopefully folks are listening to this and they've sort of been able to wrap their head around these concepts, like how can folks start getting involved with smart contracts and Web3? Because it sounds like these are, as you've described them, they're kind of different entry points, but still somewhat related. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of resources. It's kind of very difficult for me to point to good resources because lots of people have lots of takes on it. Yeah. And I would liken this to the internet in like 1997, 98, where everything looks like a great idea, right? <laughs> Pets.com looks like a great idea. Yeah. Webvan looks like a great idea. All these things look like great ideas. And, you know, maybe when you fast forward 20 years, while Pets.com failed, Amazon now has a Pets store as a subdomain of their website. And it's effectively what Pets.com's vision was. It's just 20 years later. So... These ideas may be working, but it's very hard to really find great information. Maybe I should build some sort of resource. I mean, there's a gentleman by the name of Jameson Lopp who really organizes a lot of great information around Bitcoin. And so that he has a great website. If you just search for Jameson L-O-P-P, I think it's lop.net or something like that. He has a great resource that kind of 
encapsulates a lot of information about Bitcoin. And I think Bitcoin is a good place to start learning because it's a very confined space in terms of what Bitcoin can actually do. Because once you start getting out of this Bitcoin space, everything gets very crazy and very wild very quickly. Mm. And there's this, it's just the stuff that people are doing, no financial economics book would have ever predicted this, ever. It's kind of like the wild, wild west of finance right now. I'm glad you made that analogy to like the early days of the web, because that's really like how I see like a lot of the activity right now going on with the metaverse. Like calling back to this conference that I went to, there was one session, and I've told this story on the podcast before, but there was this one session I went in where this guy was showing off like digital land in a metaverse that he was a part of. And he has on like this NFT suit and he's like, I can walk into this NFT and look at how it changes. And, you know, he's saying like, oh, you all should really see this. And we're like, okay, fine, whatever. It was just like walking around in VR space or whatever. And he's like, and we have all these, all these plots of digital land are available. And if anybody's interested, you know, we can go ahead and start the bidding. And someone bought a plot of land inside of this virtual world. It was like a 300 square meter plot for $10,000. Just bought mm-hmm. it like right on the spot. And in my mind, I'm like, what are you going to use that for? Like, I guess you could build something on it. I guess in this particular metaverse world that, that you can have people come to, but like it's, it had me thinking about like the million dollar homepage mm-hmm. and how people were buying up little pixels just to be on this one page to like stake their claim and say, ha, ah, I was a part of the internet at this time when it happened. And like, mm-hmm. it is very much like the wild, wild west, all of this because it's not regulated. People are doing all kinds of. Just wild. I mean, we're using these adjectives wild and crazy, but like it's really kind of mind boggling just how much is going on with a lot of this stuff. And it feels like history is being written every day when it comes to these things. Like none of this mm-hmm. stuff is really, it's unprecedented. It's yeah. Like you said with the, uh, with the analogy about the economics book, like no one could have seen any of this stuff like really actually possibly happening. And now it is happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think about the whole NFT space, because a lot of people have a bunch of different takes on it. You know, some people are like, why would anybody buy a JPEG online that you could just, you know, copy and download? I always think about, you know, I'm not very big into like art collecting or lots of, you know, mechanical stuff. You know, I used to really be into like mechanical watches, but right now I'm just like, you know, I just wear an Apple watch it tells the time perfectly. Mm-hmm. Mechanical watches have drift. You know, they're effectively to me, you know, just jewelry right now. But there are people that they buy things because of the story, right? Human beings are creatures of story, you know, and I'm sure, you know, as you've been going through the podcast and and having these conversations, really what people get captivated by are, are the story. So the story of if you just see a crypto punk and you're like, oh, this is just a, you know, very low poly, you know, like a, an 8-bit image that's not really that nice. That's one story you can tell yourself. But, you know, there's another story, which is this CryptoPunk was one of the first ones that got minted. I got it gifted to me. And then it was sold to, you know, this other person who was a prolific artist who then sold it to Gary V. And now this is Gary V's CryptoPunk. And there's this, now there's a story, there's this narrative that flows from what this thing represents. And people love 
to buy stories. You know, when you watch football or you watch anything, it's all about the story. Formula One was boring to a ton of people until Netflix made that Formula One show Mm -mm. with all the story about like what's actually going on behind the scenes. Who's got problems with whom? Who's getting fired? Who's getting hired? It's just a story. And I think a lot of what NFTs are about right now and what's really captivating is a lot of these stories, right? Somebody just stole $20 million worth of NFTs. That's a classic heist story that people love to read. This person, you know, this kid who was 12 years old is now a multimillionaire because he created this little NFT collection and he became a multimillionaire off of it. That's the rags to riches story. People love to hear those stories. And so a lot of what I see in NFTs is really just a reflection of what happens in the real world. It's just that it's being accelerated because we've got the internet. We've got this technology that really allows us to push this narrative a lot faster. A bunch of bloggers and a bunch of YouTubers can come up and tell the story super quickly instead of having to syndicate it through a newspaper network that takes a day to turn over and whatever. So I think that the story is really what is driving a lot of what's going on in the crypto space and especially in the NFT space. And from that perspective, I get it, right? Because I love stories. You know, I love watching movies. I got into the Formula One thing just like a lot of my friends did after watching the story behind all the people. And now I know everybody's name. I know who's got problems with whom, who started off at what racing firm and went over here and got downgraded to here and got demoted to this team and whatever. And so what people are building with these NFTs are really just stories. And people will pay unlimited amounts of money for a great story. Wow. That's a great way to put it. Now that I think about, especially a lot of the talk I've seen around NFTs, people just starting to sort of get into them and and they're making like astronomical amounts of money. But then even ones like people that are buying these, like, you know, NFT art pieces and such, which I watched a video, I think it was the other day that was like, why is most of the NFT art so ugly? And that had me thinking about, well, is this an opportunity for some designers to kind of try to find a way to make their way into the NFT space? Like, I know a few Black NFT artists that I, I'm really trying to get to come on here to really talk about how this is working for them. But yeah, I totally, totally understand what you mean about people buying the story. That makes a ton of sense to me. Yeah, I have a, I have a few friends. This is also, you know, to this whole story thing. Back in 2017, mid-2017, the CryptoPunks people reached out to them and they said, hey, we're going to give you 26 CryptoPunks. And because of the influx of growth in crypto in 2017, where everything looked like a scam and there was 100 coins coming out a day, you know, these guys were like, nah, they just ignored it. And then a few months ago, they went back to look through their emails just to see if anything had come from Larva Labs. And they saw that they were had an opportunity to have 26 CryptoPunks. Wow. Right? And what's the floor on CryptoPunks right now? $250,000 or something like that? (laughs) Some crazy number? So they would have been done. But this is also part of the story, right? The opportunity that I missed. This is like all of these little things are all parts of, you know, you can watch any movie or any Disney show or whatever. They're all parts of these stories where people love to just kind of tell these stories. And that's really what I think a lot of what's going on is about. It's really about these stories, you know, the legality. Do you really own this or not? You know, the rags to riches, the heist, you know, the clones, the fakes. There's all these like, oh, I took this NFT and I turned everybody, you know, that was facing to the right. I made them face to the left. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the controversy around that. So there's all these things that are really just that that narrative. And I think 
that's really what's selling with a lot of NFTs. We've had this since the dawn of time. You know, we've been making stories about stuff and selling stories forever. So. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Really good point. What does success look like for you at this point in your career? I feel like I'm in an interesting and very privileged space right now, just because last time we spoke, you know, you asked me, like, are you at the top of your game? And I was like, no, not even close. And I didn't even hesitate to say not even close. (laughs) I think by working at Amazon with the amazing people that I was able to work with, by working at Uber with the amazing people that I was able to work with, by getting access to a lot of really high quality individuals in Silicon Valley through angel investor networks and through just socializing, I feel like I've gotten to a point where I would still not say I'm at the top of my game, but I feel like I know what I'm shooting for right now. And I know where my, where my stride is. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that happened actually right before the pandemic, so late 2019, so really soon after I sold all my Uber stock and bought all this crypto, my brother and I actually went back to West Africa, which is where my mom's from in Sierra Leone. And you know, we get to West Africa, we land, and then my mom wanted to take us to the village and the house that she grew up in. And so we ended up getting in a car. It takes forever. You know, it's not that far if you were in the United States and you're yeah. driving on a highway, but in Africa, it's like a it's like five hour trip that should be an hour. So we finally get to this village. And on our way there, we saw a bunch of these signs. And it's it's hilarious because they have all these cities there called they have a New York there. They have a new London. Huh. And you know, we were yeah, it's funny. There's all these little town names, right? And you would never even think about this. A joke that my brother and I, as we were leaving, you know, the town where my mom was born and raised and grew up, my brother and I were like, Oh, we should start our own city called like New Atlanta and start it in Africa, <laughs> you know. You know, like build a city. Like if we were going to design a city, you know, that we wanted to be successful and build it in somewhere in West Africa, what would we build? Where would we build it? And so that idea was—it was just a joke at the time. But I've been thinking about it a lot recently in terms of the type of—and I know there are lots of other famous people. I think Akon is building a city, and I think Kanye West is building a city. A couple of really famous people are building cities. But one of the things that I'm really excited about is science, engineering, the STEM fields, right? Or STEAM fields, right? Science, technology, engineering, art, and math. And one of the things that I've noticed about crypto is in some of the communities that I'm in, I'm seeing what happens when you unshackle a person from needing to have money. It really opens up a lot of opportunity and a lot of thought and a lot of creativity to people that have skills, but they can't necessarily create in the way that they want to create because they're kind of restricted by being an employee at a company and whatever the OKRs or whatever the goals are or the profitability of the company, or you have some sort of fixed time that you have to be in and be out of work or whatever the constraints are. And so I've really been thinking about this idea and I don't really have anything formalized yet, but just thinking about like, what would it look like to build, you know, this nice, like a modern city you know, and, and I guess the goal for me would be, you know, Elon Musk has this program where he wants to have rockets, you know, fly from city to city, you know, yeah. within 30 minutes. What would it be like to have a city where you could host that in like West Africa? What does that look like? And what does that city look like? What does that design look like? And I don't have anything working towards it. I have no plans. I have no drafts. I have nothing. It's just an idea in my head. But that's something that I would love to see come to fruition. And I think that through 
the projects that I'm investing in, or the companies that I'm investing in, the projects that I'm building, I think that I can start to kind of chip away at that at that goal and that vision. And it's going to take obviously a lot more trips back to West Africa. It's going to take a lot more conversations. But I think that's something that for me, if I can get towards the goal, just any way, shape or form towards the goal of building that city. And New Atlanta is just a name because my brother and I were like, Atlanta is awesome. The black, <laughs> the black population and culture there is amazing. So we'll just build a new one, right? If we could get to anything towards that, I think that would be something that, that if I could get to anything towards that, I think that's going to be something that I would be really excited about leaving as part of a legacy on planet Earth. Now, aside from all of this you know, tech that we just talked about, we didn't even really touch on you being an angel investor. How did you kind of, like, how did you wander into that? That's a funny story. So when I was at Uber, I met uh, my manager, actually, the person who hired me. He told me, I asked him the same question. I was like, hey, how do you become an angel investor? He's like, just start writing checks and start losing a lot of money. And so <laughs> that's effectively what I did. I uh, just started finding companies. I think the first key thing about being an angel is you have to come up with some sort of thesis, right? Why are you investing? You know, are you investing to make money? Are you investing to have a social impact? Are you investing for, you know, whatever your thesis is? And then you need to know what your kind of constraints on your investments are. So I built a, you know, I'm a developer. So I called my investment firm Deploy Capital because it's just like, you know, deploy code or deploy whatever I said, deploy capital. Mm -hmm. And then the idea is that I want to invest in people that are working at a company. You know, they've got some great idea, but they can't execute on their idea or their vision because management is saying like, oh, this is not a priority right now. And I've seen this time and time and time again in companies where there's an idea, there's a team, there's a group of people that have some idea. They can't build their idea. They go out, become successful, they build their idea, but then they get you know reacquired back into some other company who's like, oh, this is actually working. And so- I really want to help the people that are dreamers, that have ideas, that want to build something, but they're constrained from a financial aspect. I want to help them grow and I want to help them build whatever their vision is. And building a company is not easy. There's lots of little steps, but there are lots of tools out right now that make it a lot easier to build a company than it's ever been. And so if I can just help in any way, shape, or form, give you some give you some help on tooling, give you some intros to investors, you know, help you find talent. Those are the types of things that I want to be able to provide. Just be a sounding board. What do you think about this? And so I got into it because I had some extra money and I thought, you know, lots of people that I know are writing money into these companies. And one of the things I realized is that investing is how a lot of the wealth in America is created. You know, yeah, yeah. You put your money into some company, and then the people that are at the company are doing all of the work, and you're just sitting there, and the value of your thing is going up because other people think that that thing is going to go up. So I kind of got into it because I was like, because I wanted to make more money, but now I have more of a thesis around it when it comes to the types of investments that I'll do. Hmm. What do you want to accomplish this year? I mean, it sounds like you've got your hands in a lot of different things. I mean, you've got your business, you're investing, you're you know doing all these other things. Like, What do you want to sort of come out of 2022 having done? I would say that from my company perspective, I would want to come out of this year with a team that is the size of about 25 people. And we have an exciting growing business. And I think we're on trajectory to do that. 
We obviously want more partners that we're working with, the best and the brightest in the software engineering space, whether they're smart contract developers or React Web3 developers. We're looking for those people. So I would want to have that be successful. From a family perspective, you know, I want to make sure that as my children are getting ready for life, you know, they're still young and they're going into kindergarten. And I want to make sure that they're getting the best experience they can. You know, when I went to school, I'm pretty sure most people went to school like this, where it's just like, you just go wherever is closest to your house and you're just in the room with whomever is there and the teachers are who the teachers are and you don't really have any optionality. We're fortunate enough to be in a position where we have optionality and I want to make sure that the experiences that they get are better than the experiences that I got as a child. Just overall in life, I want to make sure that I go through 2022 enjoying it. Because this year it started off so awesome and I'm really having a great time. I've met a lot of new people, met a lot of great friends. I'm in this, you know, perpetual learning loop and I just want to meet more people, spend more time with people. I want COVID to be over so I can go back and hang out with people in the real world. Mm -hmm. And I just want to be able to really enjoy life from a perspective, the way I was enjoying it before, but with a little bit more freedom and a little bit more optionality to, you know, celebrate and do things that I would, that I'd want to engage in. And then, you know, just meet more people, make more friends, build a business with my friends and people that are looking for help. I want to help them build their businesses and build their dreams as well. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you and your work and everything that you're doing online? Yeah, for sure. So our company, the company that I'm founding is called Atomize, and we are at atomize.xyz. Um, if you have any questions for me specifically, you can send me a message at joe at atomize.xyz, and that'll come to me. Last time I spoke, I had at Joe Blau everywhere except for Twitter, and I have a funny story. I was actually able to get at Joe Blau on Twitter, no underscore. Nice. I traded it with another person named Joseph Blau as well. <laughs> The trade was that I had to buy him a HomePod and some AirPods. I think AirPods Pro, he sold me the domain for it. For He sold me that Twitter handle for that. So it was, it's pretty funny because if you look at the shipping, it's like from Joe Blau, you know, in wherever. I think I was in Pittsburgh at the time to Joe Blau where he lives. So it looks <laughs> like somebody buying themselves something. And then, you know, we just got on a call and we did the trade. So if you're looking for me online, at J-O-E-B-L-A-U is pretty much the same address everywhere, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, GitHub, Dribble, everywhere. And then for my angel investing, that is at deploy.capital. So if you are looking for, if you have any great ideas um, and you have some insight that your leadership is overlooking and you think there's going to be a great opportunity to build a business, I would love to chat with you about it. All right. Sounds good. Well, Joe Blau, I cannot thank you enough for, for coming back on the show. This show is our kind of ninth anniversary episode. And like, it's really special to me. And I, I told you this a little bit before recording, because when I first had you on the show back in 2015, your interview came out, I think it was like in February, like February 2015. And I was ready to throw in the towel on Revision Path. I was getting so much flack from the design community and from just random folks out there. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And your dad wrote me a letter after the interview. I'm going to read the letter to you because I don't know if he ever shared it with you, but he wrote me this letter and like, I have it printed out above my desk to look at on those days where I'm like, I'm tired of revision path. I want to give this up. So I'm going to read the letter to you. It says, okay. uh, 
Maurice, please accept this email as kudos for your really excellent interview of Joseph Blau. I am not an impartial listener, but rather Joseph's dad, Robert Blau. You may even remember his having mentioned me a few times for exposing him to computers at a young age and taking him around the world as a child of a career foreign service officer. In any case, I was so very proud of Joseph's performance, both for the content and for his poise and eloquence. This is also a tribute to you for asking him the kinds of questions that would get him to make the many intelligent comments that he made over the course of the interview. I was especially pleased with the discussion that success is not usually an accident or God-given, but rather the product of hard, painstaking work. His time at Virginia Tech brought out those qualities in him, and life has continued to teach him this lesson over and over. As you noticed and pointed out, he is already successful, but has his sights set on even greater levels of success. So thanks for doing a great job as interviewer and maybe in the process, giving Joseph the kind of exposure that will help build his corporate brand. That's amazing. I love my dad because he is has a lot of heart. And I always notice that when I hang around with him. And he has been like a pioneer and really a great inspiration to me just in all the things that he's done, whether it's work ethic or just integrity character. And I really appreciate him sharing that with you because I think, and I also appreciate hearing it because, you know, him and I were very close. And so I think that it's a, it's an amazing, it's an amazing letter. And I'm glad that it's an inspiration that kind of keeps you going. Yeah. Like it, it came at a time. I mean, I was really like set to give this up. And then that very next month I was at South by Southwest and I presented this talk I did called Where Are the Black Designers? And then that just completely skyrocketed my career. It skyrocketed this podcast. And like, I don't know if I would have done that if I hadn't have gotten that, you know, that push from your dad sort of writing to say like, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. So thanks to you. Thanks to your dad. You're killing it, man. I can't wait to see what you got coming up in the future. But thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah. I appreciate you having me and uh, thanks. And I would love to come back and follow up maybe later next year or something. We don't have to wait seven years between, <laughs> between shows next time. Right. Big, big thanks to Joe Blau. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Joe and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor, Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity & Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? You know, it would be a really great anniversary present for Revision Path if you could leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts 
Amazon or on Spotify. It's the best way for me to find out, of course, how you feel about the show outside of just reaching out through social media, which, of course, you can also do. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Just search for Revision Path. You can find us there. Please let everyone you know know about this show because it really helps us grow, helps us reach more people around the world and helps us keep doing this. I mean, nine years, like I said, is no small feat. So again, thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for nine years. And of course, we will see you next time.